This is the Neurosurgery Podcast. Welcome back to the Neurosurgery Podcast. I am actually in Calgary, uh, Canada, up in the frozen tundra north, but it's really an amazing place. And uh, I've only been here once before, but I'm back here again. uh, And I had a chance to meet with someone who I just love and whose career I followed. His name is Dr. Rajiv Mehta. He's somebody you should know. He's the uh, outgoing chair of neurosurgery and neuroscience as well, I believe, right, here at the University of Calgary. Rajiv, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. You know, it's, it, it is a little bit bittersweet today because uh, I'm hoping we can go over a lot of the things you've done here locally. This is an important city in Canada, um, and you've been the head of this group for, for over a decade. Maybe you can start by introducing yourself, telling people a little bit about how you got here and what your background is. Oh, thanks very much. You know, um, you know people often ask me why, why I became a neurosurgeon, first of all, um, Michael. And, you know, it just occurred very early in my pre-medical career. I, I was interested in neurosciences and, uh, in undergrad. And then I went to Woods Hole at the Marine Biological Laboratory uh, for a summer uh, internship. And... Uh, there were many preeminent Nobel Prize winning laureates that were there who gave seminars and I did literally wet bench research on developing neuromuscular system of the, of the baby lobster. So I, I, you know, I, I was fascinated and I, um, I became interested in neurosciences and then uh, when I got into medical school I was introduced to Charles Tatter who was my mentor mm-hmm. and I spent summers and three summers and uh, one day a week during medical school for three years in his lab and, you know, got exposed to the clinics and scientists who were in his lab and uh, developed the first research project on my own and published my very first paper on my CV uh, from that work. And uh, I was very, very influenced to go into neurosurgery. And uh, and uh, that's, you know, that's how I ended up in neurosurgery, first of all. Wow, Tatter's influence is so phenomenal. His picture hangs in Alan Levy's office. <laughs> Alan's obviously my boss. And you, you and Alan were close in years in residency in Toronto, right? Yeah, we were. We were actually, uh, Alan was, uh, uh, like, we were contemporaries, essentially. We were a- almost the same year. Alan spent three years doing a PhD with Dr. Bungie at the Miami Project. So, you know, I missed him for those years. And when he came back, I had actually skipped ahead a year because I only spent two years yeah. doing my graduate work in Toronto. And so we, we kind of caught up and then we graduated more or less together. Now, it's interesting. Like, I, we're in Western Canada right now, right? Correct. Quite different. And, you know, I've, I've been very interested in this concept of the relationship between Canada and America as far as training goes. And, you know, I'm very open about it. It's like, I feel like here in Calgary, though, you've been very responsible in terms of you train people. And the product is amazing, right? The, the neurosurgeons you train here. And and you really support their careers. Like I've known so many folks who've trained in this place. And really, they're, they're real contributors to our field. Well, th- thanks. Thanks for that observation. You know, we uh, one of the things I learned in the Toronto program, and that's where I spent my first 10 years of my career after I did my residency, was that, uh, well, I trained to be a clinician scientist. And, uh, and the mantra of the Toronto program uh, in neurosurgery was to train the next generation of leaders, particularly clinician, surgeon scientist leaders. And I was trained that way. And many of my contemporaries, you know, you mentioned Alan, amongst others, were trained that way. And uh, so when I came to Calgary uh, as the section head for neurosurgery almost 20 years ago, uh, a job I held for about eight years before I became department head, um, I noticed that our training program was very good, but we weren't necessarily turning out clinician scientists. So 
that was one of my uh, goals when I was when I came here was to develop the program at to a more higher academic level. So, I think since I've come, almost all the resident trainees have done either a, a graduate degree, either a master's or a PhD during their training, or some of them have done a one-year elective, so they've dabbled a bit in research. But the but the majority have actually done those um, in-depth career, you know, um, training in. Um, Academics and uh, learned a skill set in research. Yeah, and many of them we've recruited back here to be certain scientists in our own department. Others have gone elsewhere, and so there's been a nice cadre of people that have been trained. So it's, it's, yeah. it's actually great. You know, I we JP, my co-host, is obviously not here in person, and we're doing an in-person recording. But you know, we did a, a mini series on fellowships, and one of the gaps was we didn't have a peripheral nerve fellowship. Uh, interview. Uh, in other words, someone who could talk about that. And it's not that there aren't people that do that, but they all seem to be very busy doing research. Tell us a little bit about what you've built here, the research, the surgical clinical practice, and how you see that fitting into the bigger picture of neurosurgery. Yeah, so, you know, peripheral nerve is an area of uh, overlap between dis- different disciplines. Uh, there are many uh, uh, orthopedic hand surgeons, there are plastic surgeons who train in upper extremity who make peripheral nerve their, their main forte. And, and um, in the past, uh, other than a handful of neurosurgeons, not many academic neurosurgeons have, you know, inclined into peripheral nerve surgery. And, you know, when I came up in uh, peripheral nerve, uh, I was mentored by Alan Hudson and Susan McKinnon, two giants in the field. Alan was former. Oh, I didn't know McKinnon was one of your mentors. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, you know, wow. Alan was, uh, yeah, I'll tell you how that happened. So Alan Hudson was a chairman of neurosurgery in Toronto. Yes. When I first began residency, I started doing some cases with him as a junior resident, and I became very interested. Um, um, I was fascinated by the anatomy, first of all. And then um, Dr. McKinnon had, had a lab in Toronto. This was before she went to Was- Washington University in St. Louis. And she was a, you know, she's a real role model as a clinician scientist. And uh, I did my graduate work in her, and Alan actually introduced me to Susan. And, uh, and uh, that's how my interest developed. Uh, I, I strongly believe that to be successful as an academic, you should kind of marry your interest in, in what you do clinically and what you do in the lab, whether it's wet bench research or whether it's clinical research. So, you know, my career has been on, my focus has been on peripheral nerve, both in the lab, I have a wet bench lab, and in, in my career. Uh, now, what, how I've developed that interest as, you know, after I've finished my training is that um, a few things. So first of all, um, um, you have to be, a, I think you have to be an excellent surgeon. You have to enjoy what you do. You, you know, ultimately we are here for the patients. And I love peripheral nerve surgery. I'm, I'm passionate about it. I love the condition. I love the disorders. Yeah, I love I've, the anatomy. I'm, I'm going to ask you about that. I feel like it's a moniker issue. Like peripheral nerve is not peripheral. It, <laughs> you know, the whole concept that it's peripheral, it's like, oh, it's like it's a, it's a minor, an important thing. Peripheral nerve is a model. Peripheral nerve is a practice. You know, it's all the nerves in the body yeah. other than the central nervous system, right, in a way. But people think, oh, it's got to be extremity, but it's not. It's all these other nerves, right? Well, you know, like one of my favorite OR days might be I might be taking out a a nerve tumor in uh, in the sciatic nerve and you know in the buttock area and then i might be doing a dumbbell tumor in you know in the thoracic spine with a co- with a thoracic surgery colleague through a through a scope and then we might be doing a carpal tunnel decompression so i'm in three different parts of the body in one day yeah right so uh that's just an example so yeah we're we're uh 
Uh, you know, we're we're uh, the anatomy is is amazing. It's yeah. it's a it's a great field. It's a great interdisciplinary field. You get to work. <laughs> I have great plastic surgery colleagues I work with. I work with, I work with uh, you know access surgeons for the abdominal oh, yeah? thoracic cavity. We do you know we do videoscopic and procedures for you know tumors that are in the thoracic apex, for example, that come out of the spine. With our thoracic surgeons, we uh, you know I work with my spine surgery colleagues sometimes because sometimes patients need you know. Instrumentation. They have a deformity from their tumor, so you know I do a case with uh, you know Brad Jacobs or Steve Casho or now with Michael Michael. Uh, I won't say Wang. Yang. I'll say Yang. Yang, right? Michael uh, Yang. Michael Yang, who you've trained. So yeah, no, it's great. We really are all over the place, right? So it's it's uh, it's a lot of fun. <laughs> you know, it's an it's the nightmare of the spine surgeon that the brain surgeons will connect with the peripheral nerve surgeons and and. Uh, you know, short circuit the spine and you just go from brain to peripheral nerve because the peripheral nerve is, the system is everything else but the spinal cord and brain, right? And, and I think about it, I'm like, you're right. The anatomy is, the, is in some ways the most diverse and complex. The physiology is complex and it's not well understood, but it's understood enough for intervention. And the surgeries, they're microsurgeries. Yep. They're really complicated surgeries. Yeah, so what's, what's the biggest evolution in peripheral nerve in the last uh, two decades has been to make the surgery more in, in what's what I'd call the interneural level, so inside the nerve, because we're now often doing transfers of a single fascicle, which is a, a, a small part of the nerve, which, uh, which runs you know, longitudinally along the nerve, but it goes to a, sub, you know, a certain area of function, and, and if it's a redundant function, we can take it from a mm-hmm. the donor nerve and then transfer to a nearby recipient nerve to reanimate that muscle. So a classic example now is the so-called Oberlin transfer where we'll take the, the ulnar nerve, which goes mostly to hand muscles, uh, and, but also goes to a wrist flexion muscle. The wrist flexor muscle in this case is expendable because the median nerve is there. Flexor carpi ulnaris? Correct. Okay, yeah, exactly. wow, I remembered something, Jesus. You oh, know God. your anatomy, Michael. <laughs> so anyway, we, we take that FCU fascicle uh, or one that seems predominant for that by electrical stimulation. So we bring physiology right in the OR, and then we can transfer that under the operating microscope to the nearby biceps branch of the musculocutaneous nerve to get elbow flexion back. And the results of that are like, you know, they're phenomenal. Like patients wow. get near normal, not normal function, no one gets normal function, but near normal function after, you know, a few months of regeneration. You know, th- this is something that bothered me about peripheral nerve surgery because obviously most neurosurgeons are terrified of the board section of peripheral nerve, right? Because there's, there's too many names, too many branches. There's a lot of memorization and function, you know, functional implications. And, you know, one day we're going to have that with the thalamus, right? We're going to understand it enough that we can do that, but we don't today. So... One of the things about peripheral nerve surgery that bothers me is that it's not paid well enough in, in America. I know in Canada, maybe it's different. It's the same. <laughs> okay. Yeah. But these surgeries are incredibly difficult. They're cognitively taxing and they're lengthy often, right? Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, what, there should be a movement to challenge this, right? To say, look, you do a very complex re- – what, what was the family of surgeries you called them? I call like me animation. Nerve, nerve transfers or, uh, yeah, or, you know, or, or even nerve grafts or, you know, explorations. They take a long time. They take a long time and, it, and you have to be meticulous, yes. right? You can't rush through any part of it, right? Yeah, it, it's fascinating. I, I think, you know, that's something that we need to take up as a national organization to, to be better at. Yeah, you know, part of the issue there is that because uh, there are so many disciplines that do it, there isn't one unified voice that can go to you know, your Washington committees, for example. And if we have the same issue in Canada where the relative value, so we have actually relative value in our system because 
it's our fee, it's our fee schedule uh -huh. and the relative uh, value in our fee schedule for a lot of nerve procedures is way undervalued compared to uh, other surgeries. Um, I'll give you a, I'll give you a really good example. So I could do an evacuation of a subdural with a burr hole. Yeah. Uh, which might take half an hour for my resident and uh -huh. us to do, or maybe at most an hour in the OR. And that pays more than spending six hours doing a complex brachial plexus operation. Wow. So it's, it's you know, it's completely... Is it, let me ask you a question about that. Is that because there isn't enough data to show this stuff has such a giant impact? Because it's not that, right? No, I think it's just based on how the fee schedule was developed. It's a bit antiquated and... There's obviously vested interest for neurosurgeons to advocate for the burr hole procedure. Yeah. Because, you know, we do lots of them and they're commercially important for that reason, for, for you know, for reimbursement. But there are very few brachial plexus injuries that are done and there's a smattering of different, in, you know, different disciplines of surgery that do them. So it's, yeah. it's, it's a difficult issue. You know, I mean, I, I don't know how... That's going to be a tough one to tackle. My wife is an occupational therapist, and, and she's always telling me about the hand and how complicated it is. And outside of the brain, the hand is probably one of you know the most complicated aspects. Maybe vision would be another. But, but the valuation on giving someone restorative potential, even for a limited upper extremity use, is, is tremendous, right, yeah. for, that, for that person. Um, let, me, let me ask you about something else related to this in a way, right? So... How do you get people interested in peripheral nerve surgery within neurosurgery? I know that a lot of folks do spine and peripheral nerve because they, they know the only way to get an NIH grant is to do this type of research. But how do you get people excited to say, look, this is my chosen, you know, f banner, I mean, as you have, which is, by the way, a little bit unusual, right? Most people are like peripheral nerve and something else, right? There's a couple people like you. Yeah. No, there's not. There's, the, so there's a lot more. I was saying earlier how when I first, you know, people that introduced me were mentors so you know Dr. Hudson then Dr. Klein who I did my fellowship with and when I first came out into academic peripheral nerve practice almost a quarter century ago uh, dating myself uh, there were very few peripheral nerve experts in neurosurgery across the country across North America there was literally you can count them in one or two hands right and we used to do all the national courses the seminars you know many of us played roles in leadership in the spine and, spine and nerve disorder section, joint section, for example. and But there was just a handful. And it's been very gratifying that what's happened is that uh, after Klein and Hudson, the next generation, like Alan, myself, others have come up. And then we've actually trained a whole next generation. So now we're, you know, it's like having a family, right? You just kind of train the next. And I would say now there's several dozen mm -hmm. uh, neurosurgeons in academic neurosurgery in North America who are perhaps not exclusively doing peripheral nerve, but it's a large part of their practice. And now, now almost most states in the U.S., actually, I'm aware of people in almost every state, not every state, but most states, and certainly most major uh, city centers in North America who are neurosurgeons who are doing peripheral nerve. So it, there has been a tremendous growth and interest, so it's, it's been great for, for, you know, for our field. Um, how, do, how do I personally uh, excite people? Well, you know... If you get them when they're, when they're medical students or residents, that's the best time. Mm -hmm. It's best to get you know, people excited when they're young. I've been fortunate. I've, uh, several of our residents have gone on to train in peripheral nerve surgery. Uh, two of them I've enticed into the lab. One of them did a PhD. He's currently uh, um, uh, at uh, Baylor University as a, on faculty, and he does spine and peripheral nerve practice, for, as an example. And um, I've actually trained, um, I think, about 25 fellows now over 
you know, 25 years, so almost a fellow a year on average. And many of them have come from outside North America. Mm-hmm. And in fact, in many cases, they have gone back and they're the only peripheral nerve surgeons mm-hmm. in their country. Really? So, you know, you have an amazing magnifying effect where, yeah. you know, I, it, you can have a global impact through your fellows and who you train, right? So it's been actually very, very gratifying. Uh, they're now, um, so on, in, the, in the U.S. Society of Neurological Surgeons scene, I believe there is now seven or eight CAST accredited peripheral nerve fellowships. You know, if you look at the, the website, there's, I think, seven or eight. And, you know, I know a decade ago there was two. Yeah. So it has, it has, there has been tremendous growth. Uh, I, so I think, I think the future is very bright. Yeah, I'm going to go bullish on that as well. I would say that if, if, if you were, I think you were WNS, right? Mm-hmm. Looking at the Enriched trial, which is the uh, ICH trial that was released and is published now in the England Journal, should be out any day now, maybe today or tomorrow. Um, the idea that, you know, the we, neurosurgeons keep finding green pastures or blue ocean. And I can only see upside in the future of, of nerve interventions that we will take, a, not me personally, but people like you, take a part into deal with pain, to deal with, you know, loss of function, um, you know, in terms of all the loss of limb and function that, you know, with the potential of prosthetics and robotics. So I, I'm very excited about it. It'd be like a, like a Luke Skywalker arm kind of thing. You need a peripheral nerve doctor yeah, to do that, right? Yeah. So, you know, I, uh, uh, Jim Retka is part of the Journal of Neurosurgery um, uh, 75-year anniversary a few years ago, commissioned a number of us who are at editorial board. And so for me for nerve to kind of write about the history of nerve surgery and where it was going. And it was kind of fun writing that article with Joey Groshmal, who helped me with it. Joey's my former, uh, you know, trainee who's now in Baylor. But uh, uh, the, last, um, the last bit of that article is about the future of peripheral nerve surgery, present and future. And some of the things in the present already are, t- you just touched on them, right? So we're already doing a lot of peripheral nerve surgery for spinal cord injury, which you probably know. So we're, we're using nerves that are above the level of the injury that are redundant. So mm. th- there are three nerves, for example, that move your shoulder girdle up in abduction. And we can take one of them and not lose that and direct it to give the, to give the patient triceps, which is really important for you know, a quadriplegic patient who's a C7 quad, for mm. example. Or we can take nerves that flex the elbow that are, again, redundant, and we can use them to make a, to make a, a pinch with the fingers. And, and so on. So there's all these uh, transfers that we can do. That's a f- for spinal cord injury. For amputees, so someone who's lost a limb in a war or for whatever reason, we can, we can use the nerves that are in the amputated arm in the proximal stump and direct them to a local muscle like a chest wall muscle and then use the gain uh, of, of uh, I guess, magnification in the sense because when you stimulate that nerve uh, and you get your muscle to contract or you get the patient to volitionally make the muscle contract and you put an electrode in it, there's a lot of signal in that electrode. And that electrode can now be directed to a smart prosthesis so the person can use a robotic arm essentially to f- open and close and grasp. Mm. So, and, and they're doing it using their own brain and their own nerve circuitry, but redirected to a muscle as an amplifier. Yeah, so you don't have that man-machine interface in a way that's destructive no, no. or erosive or forms scar. Absolutely. Yeah. You're, using the, you're using the patient's normal physiology through a nerve transfer yeah. and a muscle transfer and then using that physiological unit to actually yeah. drive the prosthesis. So, so these are all really cool things that are already happening. And uh, I think the future uh, is, uh, but the future will be along the, you know, the, the main, um, sorry, the mind uh, targeted interface between the brain and, you know, 
so and I'll give you I'll give you an example. So we're we're some of us are not us right now, but some some leading practitioners, in, uh, for example, one from Vienna is already starting to do deliberate amputations on patients who have completely useless frail limbs mm. and basically make them an amputee to do the same thing I just described. Oh, really? To you. Wow. So they can they can use Where is this happening? This was in uh, this is in Vienna. Vienna, Austria. Yeah, oh, wow. yeah. And I think there's a paper published in wow. Journal of Neurosurgery actually a couple of years ago. That's fascinating. Yeah. Well listen, this we're coming on a very important day for this institution. Um, I know that this is probably bittersweet for you in some ways, right? But but I wanted to give you an opportunity to reflect on it because all of us in one way or another, if we're lucky enough, will come to this sort of fork in the road. And I know there's so much more on offer for you, so much more for you to do. But but taking a, a, a slightly de- different detour on a road in a career is complicated, if, if to say nothing else about it, right? Tell us a little about what's happening in your life and, 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 and offer some advice. <laughs> you know, people are about to start into residency. People are about yeah. to finish medical school. People are about to finish their residency and go into a job. Times of transition can be stressful. Tell yeah. us, tell us what's going on with this. And it's to me, it's exciting, but it's yeah. also a loss. Yeah, thank, thanks, thanks for saying that. You know, this is actually my last week of being the department head of this department uh, in Canada. In most Canadian centers, we have term limits, so this particular job is a you know two times five year term. So I took on this role actually ten years and eight almost eight months ago. And the only reason it's been eight months longer is because the next department head starts. On Monday, May the first, so four days from today, is uh, it couldn't start right away uh, when I when I finished my term. So she's going to be great. I know her really well, but yeah, it's it's a big transition. I mean, I'm really happy with what's happened with this department. We uh, when I came when I started in this department as the department head, we you know this department is unique. It has four different um, disciplines. Really, it has a it has a neurosurgery, neurology, physiatry, physical medicine rehab as medical disciplines, and we have about. 10 basic scientists, mm. so we have, and they're PhD scientists. And so when I started, we had 80, 80 faculty, and we're now at 120, so we've grown almost 50%. And I mean, recruitment's been my number one priority, and so it's been great to see the department grow. Because of these, uh, interdis- you know, because of the interdisciplinarity of these di- medical disciplines, we can really collaborate around the patient. So, you know, whether it's a stroke patient uh, with ICH or infarcts, who needs thrombectomy, which are surgeons and our interventional radiologists do, or it's a patient uh, who has a nerve disorder, which are seen by a team of physiatrists, neurologists, therapists, and myself, and mm-hmm. our plastic surgeon in our combined clinic. So with having these you know, different specialties in one department allows amazing integration of care, and moreover, it allows amazing integration of uh, research, because again, you have these you have these bridging talents that come together. And, uh, and so, you know, it's no secret because of this, and I think the great faculty we have here, we've, you know, we, have, we have some of the leading um, uh, work and I, I, you know, in terms of clinical care, but even in the published literature, publishing journals like New England Journal and you know, Nature Medicine, et cetera, in, in areas of uh, multiple sclerosis, stroke, mm-hmm. epilepsy, um, spine care, Etc. So it's it's you know it's it's great to, I mean I'm going to miss being the department head for this department because it is amazing, uh, but I'm really proud of this department. I'm so happy. And 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 offer up some advice to our listeners like when people come to a transition like this, you know, it's it's not easy for us as surgeons, and it's not that you're retiring in any way. No. It's just a transition in job, right? But 
but we struggle with these things sometimes, right? Because we're given such great importance, which is well-deserved. How do you make that transition psychologically? So at a personal level, I just became a grandfather. So Oh, congratulations. Yeah, so, you know, yeah. our daughter just delivered a healthy baby girl two weeks ago. So wow. first grandchild is amazing. So that eases the transition. I mean, there's lots going on that's really great in our personal lives, uh, which is going to be great. I'm going to be taking a year off to, uh, to have some rest and go to some centers worldwide and look, look in on how peripheral nerve surgery is done in four or five different countries. So I'm going to be visiting several continents in the next year, which will be an amazing a year. So I, I look forward to that. You know, I've, I haven't really had a big break for a long time. So this is going to be an amazing um, chance to uh, explore and develop my own area and, uh, and maybe bring something back. And I figure, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I just turned 60, so I... You have a lot to offer still. I, I, yeah, I do. And I, I think I've got, you know, probably 10 years to go yeah. after I come back. So, you know, I've always thought I'd want to retire when I'm around 70, and that's kind of the target still. Uh, but, you know, I, can I talk about a different transition? I think sure. which I really, Which I didn't want to talk about earlier, and I forgot to. Uh, and, it's, it's, and this is for the younger people. And it's like one of the... One of the Things people ask me when I give talks as a visiting professor and I've talked to the residents and the fellows is, you know, what, why, why did you become a clinician scientist and what, what is the secret to work towards becoming a successful clinician scientist? So I did want to say a couple of words about that. Sure, please, please. Yeah, so, so I think, I think uh, you know, first of all, it's a vanishing breed because it, it, it really is two jobs and you have to be passionate and good to, to do both of those jobs at an excellent competitive level because you're competing with surgeons if you're a surgeon and you're competing with basic scientists, if you're a scientist, for grant dollars, for notoriety, for talent, for your lab, et cetera. So you really have to, you know, first thing I tell people is make sure you really are passionate and want to do it. And, you know, there, there are many of our neurosurgeon trainees are gifted people and they, they, they are ambitious and they yearn to be the best. And so they, they, they really do want to do it. So it's not enough to want to do it. You also have to... Pro- set yourself up in the right environment. So the few things I tell people are, as you're looking towards developing that, so the first thing I kind of already mentioned is, don't dabble in too many things, you know, mix, make sure your career clinically and on research is overlapped. Synergize it, yeah. Synergize it, number one. Number two, make sure you go to a place where you'll be supported. That's Mm, really important. Very important. If you don't go to a place where your chairman and your colleagues don't respect what you do and provide time, for you to do it, and time means money because you know you could you could be making lots of money when you're a surgeon, so they don't provide you real protected time. It's 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 not going to be easy for you. And the third th- uh, the third and fourth things are the third thing is, uh, sur- you know, try to work with really great people. Mm-hmm. You you're only so good as you know you limit yourself if you just rely on your own talent. So really collaborate, and use the expertise of your partners, your peers your basic scientists around you. Uh, number four, make sure you get great mentorship. Like, seek out people who are experienced in grant writing, who can help read your grant, help refine it, tell you how to protect your time, tell you how to inter- you know, interact with others, to engage um, uh, partners in, you know, worldwide in your area so that you, your career will advance. And lastly, Hire really good people. Mm-hmm. Hire great people for the lab. Nurture them. Give them time. Listen to them. Be a team. You know, be, be like a coach. Be the team leader, but really make them part of your team. And 
and, and you know, because you, 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 you're going to need them. You're going to be in the OR. You're going to be a busy clinician. You're going to need them to really um, develop that, uh, that research program and, uh, and yeah. make it successful. Lastly, make sure you get enough startup money <laughs> so that you can actually buy some equipment yeah. and, you know, hire people because uh, you're not going to get that grant the first day. So yeah. these are four or five things that I think are really critical towards becoming successful. Well, I want to congratulate you on the program. I see the uh, positive imprint and impact you've made on this campus everywhere. Um, you know, I would like to have you back in a year on your return from your world <laughs> tour. Share with us what you've discovered in that. And, and, you know, it takes a person with great wisdom to to identify what's out there in the world that might be useful for our patients. So thank you for taking the time to continue to, to, to explore. And I'm, I'm sure a lot of great things are going to come out of that. So thank you for coming on our podcast today. Oh, thanks a lot. I appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Disclaimer time. The opinions and ideas expressed in this show are solely those of myself, Dr. Wang, and our guests. They do not represent the opinions of any professional institution or organization. This show is for entertainment purposes only and does not constitute the giving of medical or legal advice. Listening to or participating in this show does not constitute continuing medical education or any other professional certification. It's just a show, everybody.